This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, you're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire. We've got a great podcast coming up for you today. Really interesting discussion on Tony Blair, what he wants and his enduring influence, or not, on Keir Starmer and the Labour Party. But before all that, we've got another really interesting discussion with today's columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, today I am joined by Robert Colville from the Sunday Times. Morning, Robert. Morning. And Helen Lewis. Hello, Helen. Hello. Uh, thank you very much for joining us uh, both. How are you, Robert? I'm good. How's August treating you? Oh, it's great. Everyone uh, from Westminster disappears, so I can actually get some work done. <laughs> uh, and Helen, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. I'm in South London as we speak, actually. So are you? I might wander the streets trying to find uh, who it is that you're talking about. <laughs> trying, to, trying to ask people if they've changed their name by deed poll and have ever served an elected office. We have had Sadiq Khan, uh, London Mayor, on the uh, station overnight. He was speaking to Adam Bolton on Times Radio. Let's hear from him. The, the ULIS policy is popular in, uh, in London. I accept uh, there are some people with concerns. We're trying to address those concerns after listening to those uh, concerns. I'm going to carry on listening to the concerns Londoners uh, have, but we can't kick the can down the road when it comes to addressing a public health emergency or tackling a climate emergency. Robert Colville, what do you make of all of this Labour's row on you, Les? Clearly a big dividing line uh, between the leadership and the Mayor of London. The leadership trying very hard to emphasise that it's not going to make people pay, uh, working people pay for the cost of net zero. Uh, But Sadiq Khan, unrepentant. Yeah, so there are two interesting things happening here. One is ULES and whether it's a good idea. And the other is the sheer velocity with which um, Keir Starmer threw Sadiq Khan under one of those bright red double-decker buses that uh, populate our lovely city. Um, on the on the ULES issue, um, Khan is sort of right. Like, clean air zones, we, we, we did a big report on this at the Think Tanker run um, recently. So clean air zones are popular. The ULES is popular, but it's popular you know, among people in the centre of London who have other options. It's not, pop- and you know, the idea of cleaning up our air in general is popular. What is not popular is the idea that people on the kind of very low incomes um, in the whole of outer London who uh, can't afford to get a replacement car and aren't being given enough money under scrappage schemes to afford a replacement car are suddenly having to pay £12.50 a day to go to the shops or go to work. Uh, what do you think, Helen? 
Well, I can go with um, Robbie on the kind of um, strategy of it, but the politics is interesting too. I mean, do you think it's actually that bad for um, Sadiq Khan, who is running for election in London now, a very Labour city, a very left-wing graduate city, to be seen to be slightly to the green of um, of Keir Starmer? I'm not entirely sure that this is a route that doesn't slightly benefit them both. Yeah, no, exactly. And especially now, the electoral system, this is a technical point, but an important one, and one I don't think people understand, is that the electoral system in London has changed now from preferential voting for mayor to first past the post, right? So actually, in 2021, Sean Bailey, who was widely seen as the Tory candidate as a bit of a joke, actually ran Sadiq Khan very close in the first round. And as you say, Helen, if the Greens tick up a few percentage points, which you might expect them to, given the salience of green issues and also uh, the left's unhappiness with Keir Starmer's leadership, that might make the difference. That might mean Mayor Susan Hall. Uh, because, you know, under first-past-the-post, it's winner-takes-all. And if Sadiq Khan, you know, loses a few percentage points and uh, Susan Hall gets the Tory core vote out, then, you know, she could end up as mayor. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... You know, um, she'd have to up her game considering from what we've seen so far. And the, the way that that Tory um, mayoral race has been run so far has not been a kind of show of massive, comp- overwhelming competence. So I'm not sure it fills me with um, hope about their performance in the in the campaign. But yeah, I think that's right. I think that there is a case for Sadiq Khan made clean air. You know, he was wandering around with his little clean air meter all the way through his first campaign. This is one of the issues on which he really cannot back down. He has made it such a sort of centrepiece of, of what he's been doing. So I think, you know, I think this is a bit of creative tension between the two of them probably won't go away. Uh, is this uh, the political equivalent of, uh, you know, WWE, uh, Robert, you know, just a uh, people pretending to have a scrap, but as Helen says, it suits their objectives, or do you sense a, a real divide here? I, I think there's a deeper tension. I mean, one of the... Starmer's team have not forgotten the way that when he was having troubles early in his tenure... Uh, Andy Burnham and Sadiq Khan kept on popping up in the mm. press to go, obviously it's dreadful that um, Skir's doing well, obviously he has our full support, but if the party does happen to be looking for a new leader, well, you know, hey guys, here I am. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there is there is bad blood there. There's also a, a, a tension. I mean, Sadiq is, well, in terms of the mayoral race, the, the, the Tories are very unpopular in London, but Sadiq is also unpopular individually. I think I'm right in saying he's the only elected mayor in the country, the only sort of local political figure who runs below his party, who doesn't have any incumbency bonus from people liking having him around. So he, so, so, so there is that. But more broadly, Starmer is really, really desperate to become prime minister. I know this is shocking news to you and your listeners. And he is ruthlessly jettisoning pretty much anything that might lead Middle England voters to be sceptical of the Labour Party, including, by the way, pretty much every single one of the 10 pledges on which he ran for Labour leader. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. And um, I think the Labour Party are aware of how increasingly the Labour leadership, you know, speaking to them, I think are aware that they need to move away from seeming as if they are literally just jettisoning, jettisoning everything they believe in or once believed in uh, and sounding fatalistic about the economy. But it's a difficult balance to strike. I mean, Helen, you've written about uh, this very trend recently with, uh, with regards to um, gender policy. Yeah, and I think that was another example of um, of what Robbie's talking about, actually, which is feeling that you are on the wrong side of public opinion on something. And actually, is this a fight that you particularly want to have? You know, does Keir Starmer want to spend the entirety of an election campaign Exactly, like saying exactly what percentage of women he thinks have a penis. No, he doesn't. He wants to talk about inflation and the cost of living and whether or not you can buy a house. So that one was Ruth to Justin. But I, yeah, I mean, you're very young, Patrick. So maybe this is a you know just an, an adolescent memory for Despite you. But I remember the. Ed- 
the uh, the Ed Miliband era, where this was exactly the same question, you know, whether or not they were pursuing what was then at the time known as a 35% strategy, you know, like, can we just get enough votes together to kind of cobble, us, you know, to get us past the line? And are we going to sign up to lots of um, Tory policies to do so? And, and then, you know, go to go back to 1997, the Blair government incoming said, we'll sign up to the first two years of the Tory spending envelope. Every kind of Labour leader has to deal with the fact that they know that they're starting from a disadvantage on the economy, that people assume Labour will come in and want to spend loads of money. And in this case, loads of money that the government doesn't have. So I think you see that caution every single Labour leader. The question is whether or not, is there a real problem that Keir Starmer doesn't have a great differentiation at the moment? Or is that a problem that columnists write about endlessly because writing, he's still 20 points ahead, <laughs> come back next week to see if he'll be 19 points ahead, it becomes sort of boring. Uh, look, don't uh, don't reveal too much about uh, how this uh, how the, how the column writing process about the Labour Party works, and you'll put me out of a job. Um, Robert, do you do you you know is there any optimism left in you at all for the next election as someone who you know someone who's been involved in Tory campaigns in the past? I think the I mean the trends are not good, right? The, the Tories are a, a long way behind in the polls. They've been in power for a while, and the economy is is not in a great place. I think the 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 salvation for the Tories, or the, you know, the, 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 the silver lining for the Tories, is that voters are still absolutely not sold on the Labour Party as, as an alternative. Although, um, you know, that, that really, you know, with the polls where they are, that kind of doesn't matter. But Indeed, there, yeah. there, there, there is potentially a path out there. There's a potentially a path back if the if the um, if the economy turn, if the economy turns around. If the, if the Tories can kind of explain that it was all due to the pandemic. If they can show all of the get some more things done, show all of the wonderful things they actually want to do. If Sunak can re- rebuild his personal popularity, di- differentiate himself a bit from the toxic Tory brand, but ultimately it's, it's hard, right? It's really hard. Especially when Keir Starmer is so ruthlessly jetting anything that might have an awkward question posed, uh, might lead to an awkward question being posed, although that itself poses awkward questions. Right, from one election to another, prosecutors have charged Donald Trump uh, for attempting to overturn the result of the 2020 election in the state of Georgia. Let's hear Fulton County District Attorney Fanny Willis, uh, who was dismissing the idea that she had brought the charges as part of a politically motivated plot. I make decisions in this office based on the facts and the law. Um, The law is completely nonpartisan. That's how decisions are made in every case. To date, this office has indicted, since I've been sitting as a district attorney, over 12,000 cases. This is the 11th RICO indictment. We followed the same process. We look at the facts, we look at the law, and we bring charges. Uh, Helen, you spent a fair amount of time over the past year or so thinking probably too deeply about what's motivating voters in the uh, in the Republican primary uh, the contest to uh, basically the contest to stop Donald Trump or indeed not as the case may be do you know, do you think people will listen to that who are going to be voting in these contests and you know not believe a word of it there has been an established problem in the Republican primary, in which Donald Trump is ahead by about 20 points ahead of his nearest rival, Ron DeSantis, who's the one I wrote about in the Atlantic. He's the governor of Florida. And the fact is that every time that sort of new charges come, and we should say these are the fourth set of, yeah. of charges. There are also ones in the Mar-a-Lago documents case where he's accused of hoarding confidential documents. There's also paying off a porn star case in <laughs> New York. That, and there's ones in DC as well. You know, the, Actually, what happens is that everyone else in the Republican primary gets asked about it. And so far, with the exception of Chris Christie, 
um, who ran last time unsuccessfully as well, they have been really very reluctant to criticise Donald Trump. So you get the situation where he's accused of a crime and then other people in his party say it's sort of no big deal. You know, and that's what Ron DeSantis has, has done. You know, he's toughened up recently, but he's classically said it is a bit of a witch hunt. You know, these are politically motivated prosecutions. So they're not doing him the, the damage in that primary that you would expect. Yeah, as you say, it's only Chris Christie who's really willing to come out and, you know, call a spade a spade, basically. I was speaking to Greg Swenson from uh, Republicans Overseas UK uh, uh, before, and he was basically saying, look, Trump is a bad man, he shouldn't have done this stuff, but it's still politically motivated and, it, you know, the, the judges and the attorneys have, have got it wrong, which sort of basically sums up the bind the Republicans have got themselves into here, Robert. It does. I mean, I, I tend towards a sort of boring, old-fashioned view that if you break the law, that there should be court cases and you should be tried, tried for it. And, I mean, with my limited knowledge of the jurisprudence of Georgia, it does seem like there is a very strong case. If you remember, in the wake of the election, um, Georgia was one of the states, or perhaps the state, that Trump needed to flip. And he was just on the phone constantly, constantly to its officials, um, basically demanding that they find the votes to deliver the victory that he... Th- seemed to believe he'd won. I think, um, actually, I think quite a lot of this case and the case in Washington sort of depends on effectively whether you believe he was nutty enough to think he'd actually won or whether he was being sort of purely cynical about this and just sort of, you know, you know basically, was he, was, he, was he sort of wicked or just monumentally self-deluded? And there are a few sort of moments where a sort of shaft of self-knowledge appears to, appears to pierce the veil, which the, the, the prosecutors are seizing on quite, um, quite vigorously. And you mentioned Ron DeSantis a moment ago, Helen. I think one of the big stories of this primary campaign as it's, you know, as it's existed thus far has been DeSantis was endlessly talked up and has sort of, you know, has underperformed expectations. Trump seems to be, you know, basically unbeatable despite all of this. And DeSantis has revealed himself to be sort of not as assured or convincing a performer as we might have we might have thought. Oh, he is no one's idea of a kind of glad hander. And that, I think that's the problem. He's very awkward in social situations. So one of the big things that happens has been the Iowa State Fair. So Iowa is an early primary state, what's caucus state. But the idea is that basically you go through a series of states and they all have the individual votes in the primary. And that makes it kind of much more like a reality TV contest because someone can suddenly do well in New Hampshire or Iowa and the narrative entirely flips. So Ron DeSantis is betting everything on a better performance in Iowa than uh, people are expecting. And at that point, the narrative resets. He's got you know the big mo, he's got momentum. But that is crushed continually by the fact that you put him in a room with normal people and he acts like a sort of weird robot. <laughs> Um, and American politics is still very, very retail, you know, and he's he's not a particularly charismatic speaker, whereas Trump, even though it doesn't make a lot of sense, it is just incredibly entertaining to watch. And I think that has been a consistent problem for, for Ron DeSantis is he's just not very entertaining and American voters kind of want entertainment. Uh, what do you think? What do you think, Robert? Have you been, uh, would you share that merciless assessment of Ron DeSantis? I, I, I think he, yeah, he's he's very clearly a, a, a very good technocratic governor. I mean, he's done a really good job in Florida by his own lights. His um, his ratings of his, his real he won a crushing re-election victory. But he's also been slightly sort of cocooned there. It's been very sort of um, quite friendly media environment. Hasn't had to do um, events where which which making him uncomfortable has been able to stick to the script. Like he is he is a class he, he is a classic technocrat. He he is. You know, he is not quite a, a, a an American Keir Starmer, but he is, uh, you know, he is just much more comfortable sitting in his office making decisions. And as as Helen alluded to, this is a point she's made before. Trump is he is fun. 
if you look if you watch him on stage it is you get these kind of three-hour improvisational kind of pavel case of sort of jokes and weirdness and tangents in which and then that kind of feedback loop with the audience he is you know he, he is an appalling figure in so many many ways but he has a really good sense of humor and he's just like yeah he is you know if uh, I, I think it was Helen who said, you know, the Santa, the Santa's promised to be Trump without the drama, but he's actually Trump without the fun. Robert, I'm just rereading your column from Sunday and wondering whether when I go to Westminster later, I'm going to be killed by a chunk of falling masonry. Well, as long as you follow the falling masonry safety map, which they've had to issue because so many pieces of falling masonry have been falling, you should be okay. Well, your your column on this in the Sunday Times uh, a couple of days ago made a very compelling case uh, that politicians to literally just get on with renovating parliament the costs of which are ballooning and ballooning uh, and and leave leave for now uh, to save the building and indeed their own lives and my life it's I mean, it's a classic um, it's a classic sort of parable of of, of how we're governed Every, everyone has known for for decades that parliament needs repair i mean it was built a very very long time ago it's you down in the basement you i mean there's all sorts of, i mean everyone who works in it will say it's an awful place to work in for multiple reasons most of which have to do with rats and mice going around or leaks or where but the really dangerous thing is that the, the the basic heating systems are you've got gas you've got steam you've got electricity all really close by each other down in the basement you've got these boilers which were decades past the out of date like 20 years ago and they are and at some point i think something will go boom there have been like 44 separate fire incidents over the last few years in in, in parliament like if you start reading into this stuff you start talking to people every single one you talk to says it is a case of when not if and at some point you sort of have to believe them um in 2018 mps did accept this and voted to um to move out but then they all started getting second thoughts and there is this if you if you if this is sort of weird obsession with the commons chamber that like it, it would be very unfair to an mp to be elected and never have the chance to sit in the commons chamber never have a chance to experience the the environment or just a, a, a fear that if they move out they'll they'll find the whole place is so riddled with asbestos that they can never move in again but fundamentally like something like the the, the the costs are going up and up and up i mean if they, if they stay in there like one of the estimates the latest big estimate was that it's going to cost 22 billion pounds over 76 years if they try to work around uh, Parliament still sitting, or at least the Commons still sitting in there. Yeah, and they agreed to move out five years ago. This is what people have forgotten because they've done so little since then. And the whole place is always sort of girded in scaffolding because that's just like constant remedial work, you know, and not even the uh, restoration and renewal of the estate. And, you know, the funny thing is you talk about MPs being sentimental about the Commons Chamber. That itself was rebuilt in the... 40s and 50s because it had been bombed to smithereens so it's not even the uh, the original i mean helen when you listen to all of this where do you where do you fall on this debate are you the sort of you know like robert get them out restore it move back in or the turn it into a museum and build something fit for purpose school of thought I'd be I'd be happy with either of those to be honest. I read um, Robert's column and I was like, this is absurd. And actually, to me, it felt more like, a, if anything, a metaphor for climate change, which is just years and years and years of denial until things are actually on fire or someone gets brained by a piece of falling masonry, and then suddenly we're kind of hand wringing recriminations and why didn't we do anything sooner? So I feel quite fatalistic. I'm a, I'm afraid about it. But the, the the bit that kind of I get stuck on, and this is something I think you put in the column, which is. Yeah, the idea that if they if they move out, say to the QE two centre or wherever it might be, or even to you know Coventry, as Lord Adonis has been arguing for years and years, that it would just cost several billion less. And yet, the fact is, this sort of weird attachment to being working in Hogwarts means that 
you know, MPs are willing to spend literally billions of money that we really don't have in order to be able to kind of just take, you know, I don't know, they're not even supposed to take selfies, but they obviously, they went through a phase of doing selfies in the division lobby, but they're just the kind of glamour of wanting to work in the same parliament that people have been in for years is just going to come at such a high price. Yeah, I was talking to one of the people involved, and apparently there's, there's on the, the ideal timing scenario for this is that you, you move MPs out a year after the general election, then you move them back in a year before the general election in, in 10 years time so you basically have an eight-year period when they when they're out but but everyone gets one year in the commons chamber everyone gets one year of this 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 vermin infested slightly shabby place that has this enormous over of history around it that was robert colville and helen lewis remember you can read robert in the sunday times every week just pick up a copy of the paper or go to the times.co.uk forward slash times red box to subscribe at his last Labour conference as leader later that year and his final Prime Minister's questions in 2007. Well, it didn't turn out to be the end, of course. He was still relatively young when he made way for Gordon Brown and Blair turned his hand to making money from his own globe-trotting consultancy and he set up a string of charities. Initially, though, he kept a low profile in British public life, in part because of the toxic legacy of the Iraq war. Now, however, the memory of that conflict has faded, his name is no longer mud in Labour circles, and Keir Starmer has made no secret of his admiration for his predecessor's election-winning record. In our big thing today, then, we're going to try to find out what Tony Blair and his Institute for Global Change are all about and what influence he could have over British politics in the future. Well, joining me in the studio now are two men who know a lot about the past and present of Blairism. Gabriel Pogrant, who's the Sunday Times' Whitehall editor. Hello, Gabriel. Hello. And John Rentoul, biographer of Tony Blair, chief political commentator of The Independent, who was wiping the tears uh, from his face as he listens to Tony Blair say goodbye. John, I'll start with you. You know, you'll remember very well the traumatic moment, as far as you're concerned, when Tony Blair left office. Well, the country's gone downhill ever since. Well, 
So you say. So you say he had to. He immediately left Britain. He resigned his seat, went to focus on foreign affairs. Uh, his domestic reputation was at a very low ebb. Uh, we talked about Iraq subsequently for a long time. You know, people even try and perform citizens' arrests on him when he's dining in East London later. Uh, Chilcot, requi- uh, Chilcot inquiry doesn't report for another ten years. But now, you know, almost a decade on from Chilcot. Are we seeing Tony Blair rehabilitated in domestic politics? Is he now, you know, once more a full participant in British public life? Yes, I think I think he more or less is. I mean, I do think uh, 2016 was the was the turning point because, as you say, that was the the Chilcot report. It was also the EU referendum when uh, Tony Blair was the most articulate and persuasive uh, voice for the for the Remain cause, and I think that um, did a lot to restore his reputation with uh, with a Labour Party, which was uh, confused uh, by uh, Jeremy Corbyn's leadership at the time. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, when he stepped down, he you know he was very unpopular. He spent most of the time out of the country because he couldn't bear it here. Uh, I mean, he was partly staying out of Gordon Brown's way. Uh, and you know, I I hoped that his reputation would start to recover. And I remember being uh, more more depressed every year as it just got worse and worse for a long time. But 2016, it started to turn around. And now the really the focus of everything he does is something called the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. We've got two challenges. One, to make the state sustainable. And second, to raise Britain's growth and productivity levels and become leaders in the economy of the future. Tony Blair sounding a bit like a televangelist there, explaining his Institute for Global Change. Gabriel, can you explain what it is. We'll talk about the story that you broke over the weekend about its work, but what exactly is the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change? So, um, after leaving office, um, Blair was sort of bedeviled by um, not only the legacy of Iraq and uh, the turbulence preceding his departure from Number 10, but also this perception that he was um, making making money in um, unedifying and occasionally rather dubious ways. He advised the autocratic presidents of Kazakhstan and Egypt, um, all while serving as the peace and uh, Middle East peace envoy to the quartet. Um, the and, quartet and, who were the UK, the US, the EU and Russia. That's correct, yes. Um, and I, 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 he, he faced a lot of criticism that he had failed to adequately separate his work in the charitable sector. He had a faith uh, institute. Uh, his work on the international stage... Um, and you just alluded to it there, and then his for-profit work. And I think around 2016, he created this new entity, uh, TBI, the Tony Blair Institute for short, uh, the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change for long. And um, essentially, you know, up until the present day, I mean, what what exactly is it that unites um, opposition to Brexit, integrating tech into the machinery of government, advising Malawi on agribusiness, uh, rolling out solar panels in Nigeria and advising Mohammed bin Salman on his modernisation agenda. The answer is this extraordinary, very big, very actually increasingly active um, moneyed organisation, TBI. Yeah, it's got a headcount of 800 people, which rivals many, if not all, government departments on Whitehall, certainly in the offices they have in, in Whitehall. John, it's also, as Gabriel was saying, a think tank, and some of its ideas were taken up by the government during the pandemic. Yeah, no, I mean, that was that was one of its uh, outstanding successes, was when Tony Blair 
proposed this policy of first doses first, which uh, meant getting as many first doses to people and, and, and actually spacing out this, the second dose because that, that didn't afford so much additional protection. Uh, it was a controversial idea. I mean, I remember being very uneasy. He proposed it in, a, in an article in The Independent at the time. And I thought, goodness, he's, uh, he's going out on a limb here. Uh, but it turned out to be absolutely the right policy and very influential with the government. Yeah, and ministers at the time, I remember, I think you covered this, Gabriel, attested to getting constant calls and suggestions from Tony Blair, many of which they, they took up. Um, but in the Sunday Times this, this weekend, you mentioned Saudi Arabia, you exclusively revealed uh, something quite controversial. The TBI continued to advise the government of Saudi Arabia, even after the murder of the distant journalist Jamal Khashoggi, uh, that shocked the world and was universally condemned uh, by uh, by the UK and its allies. And even now, it still receives money for work it does for the Gulf Kingdom. I mean, just explain that story to listeners who might not have read it. So, um, MBS Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi Crown Prince, and Blair are, are pretty close. I mean, Blair has this extra- extraordinary Rolodex in the Middle East and is super close, not only to MBS, but MBZ, the ruler of Abu Dhabi, um, Netanyahu. I mean, he was an architect of the uh, Abraham Accords, this uh, normalization treaty between Israel and uh, Arab states. And I think, uh, you know, this contract that the Blair Institute has had has been focused on, um, you know, ushering Saudi Arabia into a new era, parting with its ultra-conservative past, trying to open it up to the world. Um, which obviously doesn't sit particularly easy uh, with the dismemberment of dissident journalists. And so, you know, there was this moment um, after Khashoggi's assassination in late 2018 where, um, and, and they kind of acknowledge this to me, the Blair Institute, there was an internal conversation about what what do we do now? Because, you know, the, 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 the West was, um, you know, howling condemnation and there was, you know, a lot of pressure um, for Blair to um, basically draw a line uh, under this agreement and say, you know, I can't be advising you on progressive change if uh, you're chopping up journalists in the consulate uh, of your country in Istanbul. And what Tony Blair said, which I think, um, you know, I'd be interested to hear John's thoughts as well, I think gives us a little bit of a clue as to his sort of wider modus operandi at the moment, which is he said, um, and I think a similar instinct applied in the case of his behind-the-scenes talks with Trump vis-à-vis the Abraham Accords, he said... You know, I could submit to the you know the gallery's demands that I um, disavow MBS, but then I would I'd lose influence. I would be withdrawing from the realm of uh, you know future and future change and you know the next chapter of the Middle East. And so I could give you know Twitter and British journalism and uh, you know the liberal left um, what what they want, or uh, you know not for the first time I could do the unpopular. Uh, somewhat controversial thing and say, I'd quite like to be able to pick up the phone and tell this guy what I think. But some people would say, John, well, hang on, you've just demonstrated the futility of being able to pick up the phone to MBS uh, because he's not he's continuing unbound with his autocracy and extrajudicial killings, even but, if he's got you on the blower, Tony. So... You know, are you not just window dressing? But is why 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 would he persist? Does this is, does this gets the core of what Tony Blair is about after office? That sort of almost messianic zeal to, you know, drag the world along with him. Well, it's a messianic zeal and 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 a, and a view that he and 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 he alone understands power and how to use it. Um, and he's um, you know he's freed from the constraints of a democratically elected politician, and so can uh, can ignore those pressure, or at least he can. 
he can he can resist those pressures. I mean, he's not ignoring them. He's actually dealing with them. Uh, it makes me feel extremely uncomfortable, but I don't have to make the the decisions. I'm a I'm I'm a commentator. I mean, I do remember uh, as a leader writer for the Independent, uh, some of the most difficult uh, editorials I had to write were defending. Uh, Tony Blair's decision to stop the serious fraud office investigation into those um, jet sales to Saudi Arabia, um, because that was straightforward, ruthless, cynical rail politique. Uh, and his argument is that uh, you know, if if you give up your influence, then uh, th- then worse things happen. But the flip side of that, John, is people say, "Well, look, Tony Blair has become a wealthy citizen of the global village who flies around the world." Uh, I think, Gable, perhaps even in a private jet was a discussion that was uh, uh, the well, TBI the, might the, have had. The phrase oh, private well, jet, I'm afraid, is just... It's just no, 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 red, but there, there was a discussion flag, about whether to, whether to charter a plane, but sort of, you know, this, regardless... This didn't quite get into the Sunday Times, so this is, this, is a extra, this is a bonus oh. edition for listeners to Times Radio. They didn't, they didn't deny this, but my editors thought it was, it was a little bit too mischievous or it wasn't that interesting. But uh, yes, it is true. There was a discussion within the Institute about uh, permanently leasing a... A private jet, <laughs> but 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 the, but the issue, John, is, you know, it, does Tony Blair but, now look like a globe trotter who will just you know yes, say anything for a price? Well, of course he does uh, to people who hate him in the in the first place. But I mean, the the, the point about the money has always been that I, I mean, I, I I genuinely do not believe that he's he's interested in money. I mean, he's fine he's fine to have a comfortable lifestyle, and he wanted to reproduce the lifestyle he had as prime minister. So he's got a country, he's got a country uh, house somewhere near Chequers. He's got a London house that just looks a bit like Downing Street near Paddington, uh, and he and he you know he still lives in and out of uh, of four by fours with darkened windows and 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 flies by uh, jet chartered jet. Um, but that's not the point. I mean, that's not what he's. That's not what he's about. That's it's not, not about the wants. trappings of office. It's uh, about what he, as you say, what he's doing with power. Is that what you? He what thinks, you identify? Yes, absolutely. I mean, he just wants to have a a basis for exerting as much influence as he can uh, on uh, on politics. I mean, in Britain and and across the world. But what is the world of Tony? What does the world of Tony Blair's dreams look like? Well, I mean, it is messianic in the sense that I mean, it's it's the clues in the name, isn't it? It's the Institute for Global Change. He wants to change the world. And he wants to change the world for the better, and he's always he's always done that. And he's always had a very strong view about what he thinks the compromises are that you need to you need to make in order to in order to achieve good things in the world. And what is the thread that links all of the Tony Blair Institute for Global Changes project, Gable? If we're thinking about what does Tony Blair want, that's the question we're asking this morning. What is the change he wants to affect? What is the how does he want to see the rest of the world? and governments use their power? What, what is the common thread that links all of the projects it's involved in? I mean, I think, um, you know, to, to, to coin a phrase, uh, Blair sort of recognises that the, the kaleidoscope has been shaken, the world is changing, and I think what unites uh, Tony Blair's institutes, projects, is that Tony Blair wants to harness and shape and spur and craft and bring to bear on these changes he's witnessing in the world. So, so sort of technology, AI, that sort of thing. There's a lot of talk about technology and AI. Um, I, I, I think that um, it's, pr- it's probably united by a desire to impact on, you know, a changing world, uh, but also, ad- I think, in relation to these autocratic regimes, uh, you know, who one wouldn't uh, ordinarily be seen publicly with, um, I think he f- has this sense, a kind of deep conviction that, you know, it doesn't. I, I, I mean, 
this may or may not be fair. I get the impression he thinks British political discourse can be somewhat parochial, and he sense and he feels that it doesn't really matter what people say here. The world is as it is, so I might as well be involved in it. So it doesn't matter what people, you know. For instance, there are a lot of people that were rather upset about MBS's death. Well, now Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, is muscling in on a new state of the art. Uh, hypersonic jet deal with Japan, the UK and Italy. It's purchased Newcastle FC. It's buying all of our players. It's creating a city in the desert. And, you know, frankly, uh, you know, the money means it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. So I might as well try and, um, you know, in it affect what's going on so as to make it more consistent with the values that I embody. The, well, I think the, that's, the, that's the crucial point, isn't it? Because it, all this is in the service of what, what ultimately... Uh, I think are progressive values. I mean, you know, I mean, a lot of uh, the, the institute's work in in African countries is about uh, dealing with uh, with 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 deep poverty uh, and making the lives of, uh, of 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 the people better. Now, let's welcome Polly Toynbee, columnist for the Guardian, into the conversation. Hello, Polly. Hello. Uh, before I come to you, Polly, let's listen to what Tony Blair and Keir Starmer said when they shared a stage. That would have been unthinkable only a couple of years ago at Tony Blair's Future for Britain conference. You know, you've done an amazing job. You've taken the Labour Party in 2019. It was on the brink of extinction, frankly. Uh, and you've taken it. I know you can't say it's on the brink of government, but I think it's a, it's a pretty good prospect. And yet, I think we both agree that 1997 is very different from 2024. The mood then was one of growing optimism. That song, Things Can Only Get Better, that resonated because it felt that was the mood of the country at the time. The economy was growing and, you know, what Labour was able to come in and, and absolutely sort of turbocharge that sense that we're going to go into a new century, it's a new way of doing politics, modernising, things can only get better. That's not the position now, by a long shot. Polly, what did you think when you saw that? Because Labour, for various reasons, spent years trying to distance itself from Blair because of his record, uh, particularly the elephant in the room, Iraq. And now Keir Starmer's hugging him close again. Is that the right decision strategically, do you think? I think he's hugging him close with a fair amount of wariness, possibly on, on both sides. It would be absurd, it was absurd to try and cut him out of the past. Uh, no, not only the most success labor's most successful winner but for a lot of what he did it meant that both Miliband and Corbyn never spoke about the great things that labor did in power which was ridiculous i mean not to talk about 3500 shul start centers not to talk about lifting a million children out of poverty or the nhs in the best state it had ever been uh, you can't wipe those things out. And as for Iraq, well, to some extent, the country had already forgiven him. He scraped by in, in the 2005 election, but he'd had an election after Iraq. And although I regard it as one of the great disasters of our time, uh, you know, he had been kind of forgiven. So there was no need to keep him at arm's length in that way. On the other hand, I do think that he can be very unhelpful now when he speaks in public probably helpful with advice in private. When he speaks in public and says things like, well, Britain's contribution to global warming isn't very important. What really matters is China. You know, that really undermines Starmer's main message, which is, and his main investment, mm. which is Green New Deal, and is all about 
going green and uh, a transition to green technology. Polly makes an interesting point there, Gabriel. Tony Blair comes with a lot of baggage. You know, even now, just in the past couple of seconds, John at Thrapston on the text has texted in and said, the only place Blair should be is, capitals, oh, here we go. a courtroom in The Hague. Right, so that is a, that is a barometer it's of how people feel. and wrong. Well, John, you may, you may think so, but not everyone shares your view of Tony no, Blair. No, what it means is that they disagreed with Iraq, and I wish people would express that. Well, Iraq was, was a, big foreign, a big foreign policy calamity. Well, it was, yes, but it would have happened anyway, whether uh, uh, whether Britain had been part of it or not. So I think a lot of the moral in- indignation, it says much more about the people who are upset about it than it does about uh, Tony Blair's policy. But too much baggage, Gabriel, for Tony Blair to be, you know, as Polly says, not distancing himself, uh, you know, not writing about history as the Labour Party did, but say Ramsay MacDonald as well, but, you know, literally, almost literally embracing Tony Blair, the man and the politics. You know, I think um, there are a lot of people that deem Keir Starmer to be the most cynical politician uh, to run the Labour Party, given the way he appealed to this idea of a rainbow coalition of the soft left and the left and the centre ground during his leadership contest, only to, uh, you know, very very dramatically pivot uh, towards kind of reheated Blairism. I've always been sympathetic to something Danny Finkelstein wrote uh, uh, probably last year, which was it might actually be as, uh, you know, dissonant to the uh, people who hate him, uh, but as simple as he's changed his mind in office. He's looked at Labour's history. He's seen, you know, the sheer extent to which Labour in general doesn't win elections very often. I think Blair used the language of, uh, you know, the 20th century was a Tory century. Let's make the uh, 21st century Labour one. Well, it's not succeeded so far. And I think he has just tried to you know, I don't know if he's trying to hug Blair personally. He's trying to hug, you know, the principles that Blair embodied in his leadership of the Labour Party, namely a ruthless prosecution of that which is likely to yield, um, uh, you know, general election victory. Do you detect that in Tony Blair, uh, in Keir Starmer, rather, Polly? Uh, yes, I think so. I think he has changed his mind. I think that because of the dysfunctional nature of which way in which we, a tiny group of people who happen to belong to political parties, choose the leader, and they're mostly very unrepresentative, it means that, you know, for instance, Rishi Sunak, when he was trying to get elected but lost to Liz Truss, that tells you a lot, had to prom- say all sorts of things that he plainly didn't believe. Um, and that's an unfortunate part of our constitution. But I do think he probably has changed his mind. I think he's looked more realistically. Uh, you know, the idea that you could nationalise uh, if it means using all of your money, which you haven't really got anyway, on paying shareholders in order to buy back water companies and electricity companies. I think what we'll see, though, is a real, when in power, is a real tightening of regulation in such a way that some of them may collapse or may choose to hand them back, but not to spend a lot of taxpayers' money on that. So I think there are a lot of quite crafty things that will emerge after he's in power that may make him seem a great deal more radical than he looks at the moment. But at the moment, it's all about winning. Afterwards, I think there are other lessons he should learn from Blair, such as Blair did too many things that were too easily wiped out. How do you make things permanent? Uh, You know, Blair didn't leave enough of a permanent footprint on this country. How do you make sure you make lasting changes? Well, Keir Starmer has actually spoken on this very programme about the influence Tony Blair wields, may wield, or indeed doesn't wield on his government. Let's hear from him now. Well, look, what I do want to do is take advice from people who know what they're talking about. And 
what I'm trying to do is to get the Labour Party from a terrible election defeat in 2019, um, what will be 13 or 14 years of opposition into government. So do I want to talk to Tony Blair and to Gordon Brown, who were the last leaders that achieved that switch from opposition into government for yeah. a Labour Party? Of course I do. Um, not actually about the substance of particular policies, but more about... Um, how, the how framework, the approach, yeah. um, the pace, um, so much has changed in 25 years that um, the, a policy discussion wouldn't be the right one. But yeah. it is about understanding how does a party go from years in opposition into, into power, hopefully, and, and, and uh, into government. Well, let's take those two things in turn. John, you know the Blair playbook inside out. When Keir Starmer is saying he's following the, you know, the pace, the framing, the structure of the Blair playbook from the 90s, is that actually true? Is he doing it as well as Tony Blair was doing it? Or is he still making mistakes, in, in your view? No, but he can't do it um, as, as well as Tony Blair because he's not Tony Blair and he doesn't have that instinct for British public opinion that uh, Tony Blair has uh, and had. <coughs> um, but he is obviously following uh, following a lot of a, a lot of it, and the eternal the eternal verities about um, a- appealing to the voters that uh, didn't vote for you last time, which is what upsets so many people in the Labour Party because they just cannot understand why why you should be going after uh, Tory voters. Um, but I think uh, you know that produces a sort of dissonance uh, with what we know about Keir Starmer's um, previous life. Um, because he was a sort of soft left, um, Ed Miliband type uh, person in Labour politics, but uh, has has now changed. But uh, I don't think most people notice those those differences. I mean, most people outside uh, the Westminster bubble. Well, they might do if they see pictures of Keir Starmer and Jeremy Corbyn together. But people don't seem to care about that. It's, it's extraordinary. I mean, it looks it looks very odd to you and me. Uh, but I don't. I don't think most voters uh, really pay much attention. They want to hear what Keir Starmer has to say well, now. Well, I think CCHQ are going to try uh, regardless. Polly, Tony, um, Keir Starmer. They're talking about how he's not necessarily interested in advice on the substance of policy, and that's a point you were making before. You know, often their analysis, analysis clashes. You mentioned climate. Blair still supports ID cards, for instance, and he thinks advancing technology make them an even more obvious idea to pursue. It's an interesting tension, isn't it, as you were saying, that they, yes, there's a sort of conscious imitation or taking inspiration from the Blairite campaigning approach, but on the substance of policy, there's some distance between them. I think the moment uh, a leader leaves or any politician leaves office, their feet actually leave the ground and they are no longer in touch with the voters. And I think Blair really isn't. I think he's full of fascinating ideas about AI. I think his institute is capable of producing a lot of interesting stuff. But quite plainly, when you hear him talking about Brexit, for instance, he simply doesn't get it to the extent that in no way possibly could Starmer dare to say, well, I think we should consider rejoining at some point or even rejoining the single market. I understand Blair's ache that he feels about Brexit, but he doesn't take on the chin that he's quite responsible for it. He never made a speech about Europe in this country the entire time he was leader. He never praised it. It was always red lines. I'm going out there to fight him. He was part of the syndrome that led us that way. And as a oh, result... Polly. They, I mean, it, honestly, it, that is such a travesty of what Tony Blair's yeah, record I agree on Europe was. passionately pro-European, but he never, ever sold it. No, that's not. That's completely untrue. Well, John, John, you can defend Tony Blair's honour in your own time. We're, we're rapidly running. Out, we're, we're rapidly running out of it. Gable, I just wanted to put the last 
question, get a last thought from you. Earlier, you made the point that Tony, uh, that Keir Starmer, rather. See, they're so similar nowadays. You <laughs> get their names mixed up. That Keir Starmer isn't ruthless, uh, and I think that's a word that people around him use, and has changed his mind. To what extent is his relationship with Tony Blair and Blairism and that sort of era? You know, lots of the same people who work for Tony Blair now work for Keir Starmer. Let's not forget that. But to what extent do you detect a degree of expediency in this? You know, is he doing this because, you know, it's the uh, it's an expedient thing to do right now, and once he's in government, he might jettison Blair and Blairism. That's 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 a big question, and Keir Starmer's record to date suggests that, you know, it might be one we're asking in in a couple of years' time. Should he get into number ten? Well, yeah, I think I think um, Starmer stands to gain from the relationship with Blair in two quite specific ways. You know, number one, um, he can project the idea that you know he like Blair a generation ago, standing on the precipice of the promised land and, you know, is also going to do what's required to connect with the British public rather than the selectorate that anoints the Labour leader. And that, uh, you know, historically and, uh, you know, in the present era is, is a kind of valuable political strategy. He also stands to gain from the resource provided by TBI. I mean, um, this is probably a bit too Whitehall, Westminster bubble, but, you know, we have this organisation called the Institute for Government, which, uh, you know, produces research on uh, what's going on in SW1 and also helps prepare um, prospective uh, opposition parties uh, for government. And I think, you know, the TBI is kind of trying to do the same for Labour, or at least has offered to do so. Um, is it expedient? I mean, it doesn't emerge from any kind of great historical, uh, you know, fraternal ties between the two, absolutely. Well, there you go. That is what Tony Blair wants. Thank you to John Rental, his biographer and chief political commentator at The Independent, Gabriel Pogren, Whitehall editor of The Sunday Times, and Polly Toynbee, columnist at The Guardian, for talking me through the answer to that question. That's all we got time for today. Make sure you tune in to the podcast tomorrow. In the meantime, like, share, subscribe and follow wherever you get yours from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.